Well, if you have your Bibles, you'd open up to Mark chapter 10. We're going to get right into it because there is a lot to cover. Um, if you are just joining us, welcome. Uh, thank you for being with us. Now, the Gospel of Mark had begun with what is called a voice in the wilderness, a man named John the Baptist, and he was preparing the way for the Messiah, namely Jesus. And for 30 years up until that point, Jesus lived a fairly obscure and silent life as a marginalized peasant, if you will, in Nazareth. But when John the Baptist was arrested, and thus the voice was silenced, Jesus began to preach, and he preached his first sermon, saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And what followed was three years of ministry, where Jesus walked the countryside, healing and teaching and really manifesting this kingdom of God that he talked about. And through his ministry, we come to understand that the kingdom of God is the restoration, the return of God's rule of his world and the renewal of his creation. So redemption, salvation is a total spiritual, but also a physical, an individual, but also a communal transformation, a healing of everything that sin has destroyed. And it is something that we can experience now in Christ, but it is something that we will experience in its fullness away from the presence of sin completely at His return. Now, Jesus has made known what the kingdom is, but now as He journeys towards the cross from Capernaum to Jerusalem, the cross where the kingdom will be reestablished in the most tangible way He begins to discuss who, who is actually going to enter the kingdom, who will be with him forever, who will be worthy, if you will, to live with him. Now Jesus has taught some sobering things up to this point, some things that we don't talk about a lot. He taught that great, I'm sorry, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and few, he says, find it. He even warns those who believe that they found it that everyone who says, Lord, Lord, doesn't necessarily get into the kingdom of heaven. He explains that there are many who do mighty works and mighty things in the name of Jesus, and yet, he says to them, I never knew you. There's a reason why Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians said, make sure you examine yourselves Test yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. He says, do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Examine yourselves. Well, it's been said that even if we have not all been exposed to the virus, everyone has been exposed by the virus in this time. It's been quite the test for us all. It has revealed things about ourselves, things about our world. Such trials are necessary. Peter talks about that testing and trials are for the genuineness of your faith to come to fruition, that it might 
result in the glory of Jesus at his return. That said, we have to be careful not to spend our time evaluating everybody else, looking at the symptoms of others or judging the spiritual health of those that we know and wonder. I wonder if they're really a Christian. Instead, we need to look at ourselves. And so this morning, I would encourage us to come to Jesus. Let the Word read you. Allow ourselves to hear His promises and His warnings about faith and let them comfort you as children, kingdom-bound children that should be resting in His promises or perhaps convict you as one of the childish of the world who needs to repent. Either children or childish. We'll see. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. I'm going to read quite a bit. It says this, And they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them, them being likely the parents. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, and he laid his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Well, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Well, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children's lands with persecutions and the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. Well, this is God's Word. And although these two scenes seem kind of unrelated from one another, as you read it carefully, you see the references to the kingdom and Jesus calling His disciples children, how He binds it together perhaps in one lesson. And really, these two interactions that are quite small are addressing one big truth, and that is simply who 
enters the kingdom of heaven. Who, who does Jesus receive into the kingdom of heaven? Who does Jesus reject from the kingdom of heaven? Now, the first scene deals with kids, little children. Parents are literally bringing their children to Jesus, the great rabbi, to be blessed by his touch. Now, it's important to understand the culture of Jesus' day. They had an interesting relationship to children. They were largely diminished in value, unlike uh, when they were older. When they were younger, they were viewed as consumers, not contributors to society. They were paradoxically considered a blessing on one hand and also a burden socially on another. And largely that's because they were physically weak and quite vulnerable. Even if the child survived infancy, which obviously was difficult at times in this, that day and age, many children died before the age of 12. And so infants and younger children were often brought to elders or rabbis to be blessed because they died so young, hoping to preserve them in life. So, feeling perhaps overwhelmed by all the kids and, and all the toddlers, and we all know probably what that's like. If you've had any number of kids, they're all there, and, and the disciples are like, ah, knock it off, leave Jesus alone. They start rebuking the parents. And as always, Jesus has a very different response to the children. He welcomes them, and he's actually quite angry with the disciples for hindering them. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus talks a lot about children. He speaks quite warmly and positively. Earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus had said, whoever receives a child in my name receives me. In fact, he receives God. He elevates the value of kids. He warns at one point that it is better for you to have a big cement block attached to your neck and for you to drown than to cause a little child to stumble. When he will eventually enter Jerusalem and he will be on a donkey, he will identify the praises of children as the fulfillment of prophecy saying that it is the voice of infants and babes that God uses to muster strength to defeat the enemy. And here, obviously, Jesus declares that the kingdom of heaven actually belongs to children like this, going so far as to tell his disciples, you have to become like children in order to enter yourself. So it follows then that the condition or the disposition or some sense children give us a picture of what it means to not only be worthy to enter the kingdom, but perhaps even able to be in relationship with God. Now, without question, the faith of children is quite unique and wonderful. If you've had kids or spent any time with children, you realize that they have a faith that's beautifully simplistic. It is incredibly attractive, especially, I think, as I've had kids, how they just accept when they're younger the words of their father no matter what. I say that when they're younger, 
that changes as they get older. But when I still have young children. I still have a six-year-old daughter. She still has that wonderful sense of innocence to her where I could tell her just about anything and she will believe me. Like I could say, did you know daddy can shoot lasers out of his eyes? She won't say whatever. She'll say, are you serious? Like she's not really sure. I could tell her anything and, and she will have a tendency to believe first even if she's like, are you serious? Are you serious about this? But she's like implying like, I actually believe you because you're my dad and I believe you. So like there's just a beautiful simplicity to trusting in that. Like children, they trust very easily. Uh, They follow eagerly. They rest relatively securely. And they pray boldly. If you've ever had a problem uh, or, or something that's really been difficult as an adult and it seems impossible, if you share that, however appropriate, with children, often, well, just pray. Just pray about it. That's happened more times than I can count where I'll be challenged in my own faith. Like, well, just talk to God about it. Like, yeah, I probably should do that. They have a very simple, beautiful, attractive faith. And it's not to suggest they have a perfect faith. Merely a simple one. Not naive, not uninformed, but pure and unencumbered. Now even though children really have nothing to give Jesus tangibly that you know, he doesn't already have, they come to Jesus expectantly. They come to him without fear. They come to him without concern for the approval of men. And Jesus says, bring it. They're too young to impress Jesus with anything. They're too weak to really do anything for Jesus. They come without any pretense, without any fear, and with every confidence that they're going to be loved. And truly, being with Jesus is enough. And catch this. Not only is being with Jesus enough, enough delighting in his delight of them is really all they desire think about our own approach to the lord our own approach to god the father do we approach him like children who have all the confidence in the world and joy in his delight of us That's what children do. And the next scene can't be any more different in how the approach to Jesus plays out. A grown man runs up to Jesus and the disciples do nothing to stop him. They're stopping the children, but they let this man pass. Unlike the children who come just to be with Jesus, they may say very little. They certainly are going to do very little. This man comes asking, what can I do for you, Jesus? And I would argue that's quite childish, spiritually speaking. He does ask an important question. 
good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's a question that I would argue everyone at some point asks in their life. The majority of people in our nation, for example, believe in heaven, and the majority of those people believe they're entering into heaven because of what they have done. Or that they won't because of what they haven't done or done badly. Makes sense that people would ask this kind of question about the afterlife, what's next, because Ecclesiastes 3 tells us that God has put eternity into the heart of man. So he does wonder and search for meaning. Unfortunately, this young man asks the wrong question. He doesn't ask, how does one get into heaven? How does one obtain eternal life? On the contrary, he asks Jesus, what do I have to do to get into heaven? I would argue that one of the greatest obstacles to eternal life, one of the greatest obstacles to faith, is a heart that wants to do something for Jesus as opposed to a heart that wants more than anything just to be with Jesus. Spiritually speaking, this is the key difference between a child, a child of faith, and someone who is just simply childish in their faith. Now before Jesus answers this question, because it's a question, he actually asks his own question, kind of derails him for a second. He says, why are you calling me good? God's the only one that's good. And in many ways, he's challenging this young man like, do you know who you're talking to? You still want to stay with that label? Because he is the Son of God. He is God in flesh. But I think in answering or asking the question, he may perhaps be challenging more so this man's view of himself. This man's view of his own goodness or goodness altogether. Well, we quickly learned that this man believes that he is good. He is perhaps believing that you can be good enough, do enough good things to find your place in heaven. Now, again, Christianity is unique from all other religions. And what I mean by that, every other religion is going to call you to some sense of good works to earn your way to whatever heavenly form they have. Christianity basically says no amount of goodness is going to get you into heaven. Because no amount of man's goodness is actually good enough. Well, Jesus proceeds, though, to tease this out for him, to kind of lead him down this path to expose this good man's insufficiencies. And he gives him a quite technical answer to his question. He says, all right, how do you enter into heaven? He says, well, you have to perfectly satisfy the commandments. And he names some. Names the fifth, names the sixth, names the seventh, names the eighth, names the ninth commandment. And like a good Pharisee, this young man claims, well, I've done all these things. I've done all these good things since I was young. I didn't just start doing it. I've been doing them for the whole time. And in doing that, he seems to 
fail to recognize what Jesus didn't mention, which was namely the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment is one of those commandments that is easy to forget because it's difficult to measure. I can tell you if I murder somebody, if I don't, if I commit adultery, I don't, if I deceive, if I don't, like, that's pretty easy to measure, but what about coveting? In all the years as a pastor, I've had all those things, many things, confessed to me. I have never once had anyone say, you know what, I'm struggling with coveting. Coveting is just an unhealthy desire for possessions, for other people's stuff or more stuff than you have because you're discontent. And that's the very thing that this young man is struggling with. But he doesn't mention that 10th commandment and the young man doesn't notice that he didn't mention that 10th commandment. And so, assuming his goodness for sake of argument, Jesus says, okay, if you've obeyed them all, you only have one thing to do. And you can imagine how eager he is to hear that. What is the one thing? What's the one thing I got to do? He says, you need to give away all of your livelihood and follow me the rest of your life. And that was like a dagger to his heart. Because he had many, many possessions. And asking that question or giving that One thing Jesus exposes this man as having a quite childish faith, though on the surface he looks like he has it all together. He's a good Bible-believing Jew, asking good Bible-sounding spiritual questions. He is a blessed man. He is a wealthy man. And yet, Jesus exposes him as a very broken and idolatrous man. And so when he hears this, give everything away, it's interesting that the young man doesn't ask any clarifying questions. Like, everything? Follow you how? Like, Like, really follow you around? He just walks away. He says, that's, that's too much. That's too much to ask. Because he had many possessions. He rejects Jesus, and Jesus doesn't chase him down. Jesus say, no, 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 wait, you misunderstood. Jesus say, well, let me, let me help it, make it easier for you. He lets him walk away. But then he addresses his disciples, and he addresses them as, interestingly, children. He says, hey, children, not insulting them, but perhaps connecting to faith. And he says, children, it's really hard, as this guy's walking away, hey guys, it's really hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's near impossible. As an aside, you could preach a whole sermon on that, and I have before. I will just say this. We live in a very opulent culture very wealthy part of the nation. And yet, I think for all of us, we struggle with the idea of, like, if I had a little bit more, it would be easier. I think it very interesting, though we would never admit that, how all of us would like to be a little wealthier. Not rich, just a little bit richer. Be easier, nicer, right? I think if we took 
Jesus' words seriously, we would understand that he says, do you know how hard it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven? Like, again, we don't view ourselves as rich. I think we are. But our desire for riches is there. And Jesus says, like, stay away from it. It makes it harder. That's not our attitude. We don't believe that. He didn't say it's impossible. He says near impossible. It makes it really hard to be wealthy and to understand some things about the kingdom of God. Well, again, he lets this man walk away. The disciples assume, and this is because this was a Jewish mentality, and it's in many ways in the Old Testament, they assume that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. That this kind of blessing was related to righteousness, and they've heard how righteous this guy is, and so they're blown away when Jesus says this, and they go like, okay, if, if this dude who is blessed by God, who sounds like he's super righteous, if he's not getting into heaven, who can? And they're dumbfounded. Well, I would argue that there is no place for childish adults like this young man in the kingdom of heaven, but there is a place for anyone who has what Jesus has told the disciples is necessary, a childlike faith. But what is that? He doesn't tell his disciples to be children. He just says that you need to become like children in your disposition towards God and His kingdom and even perhaps in your view of yourself. See, ironically, an adult-like faith, if we can use that term, is actually quite childish. And such people are not merely unwilling, they're really unable to receive the kingdom of God because they're working so hard to achieve it. In other words, Jesus doesn't come and offer us advice or instruction about what we are to do. Jesus comes and says, there is something to believe. And for some reason, that is easier to accept for those who are childlike. Those who are adult-like go, oh, there's got to be more. There's got to be something else. Just believe. So taken together, these two narratives reveal, I think, what it means and what it doesn't mean to have a childlike faith. And so I simplified it down to three basic truths I think we need to believe. And when you believe these truths, I think this puts you in a position to receive the kingdom of God. It's simply or this. I need something. I have nothing. I get everything. I need something. I have nothing. I get everything. Let me break them down really briefly for you. A childlike faith believes that I need something desperately, right? Even the unfaithful, even non-believer looks at the world, perhaps especially right now, and says, man, there's something messed up out there. But it's only the faithful who will say, you know what? There's something really messed up in here. There's a hole, an emptiness. It is God-shaped and I'm going to attempt, as most people do, to fill it with everything but God. 
But that emptiness is there, that, that brokenness is there, and, and people do go about trying to fill that emptiness, that lack of meaning, that lack of hope with everything under the sun. We read this in Ecclesiastes. And Solomon in Ecclesiastes, and same with this rich young ruler here, like they pursue all power, all pleasure, all, all position, all possessions, everything, and eventually realized, ah, it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't fill that hole. And it's not that we're just looking for something to satisfy our fleshly desires. We're looking for meaning. And in many ways, we're looking for something to relieve the sense of guilt and shame that we all feel. We all feel it. Now, even though this rich young ruler has supposedly obeyed all these commands since he was young, isn't it interesting that he still comes to Jesus believing there's something else? He still comes to Jesus having been righteous and goes, I just, there's got, what do I got to do? There's got to be something else. It's as if he senses like, I know I've been good, but I just don't feel good enough. And guess what? He's right. Now, of course, not all of us sense that spiritual bankruptcy all the time. Many can find a kind of satisfaction in the world that satisfies temporarily. And many can ignore their guilt, sometimes indefinitely, by pursuing all kinds of things. But there is one aspect of our need that cannot be ignored by anybody. So these little children, they don't necessarily have a sense of their need, right? I know when my children are, are coming into faith because they are beginning to recognize their deficiency. They begin to recognize their sinfulness. But these little kids at this point, as these parents are bringing babies and toddlers, they're not going to be like, you know, confessing their sinfulness necessarily. But you go, well, why are the parents bringing them? Because the parents recognize something that reveals our desperate need, and that is they die. Death is the great revealer that we are in need of something that we can't fix. Like something is broken and there's nothing we have that can stop it. Death comes to us all and only the childish think that they can cheat it. Only the childish think that they can find satisfaction in this world, that they can ignore their shame and guilt forever or that they can somehow cheat death. Like children, and I mean literally, if we are left to ourselves, like a small baby, if we are left to ourselves, we die. We need something. Need something outside of ourselves. Which leads to the second belief that I have nothing. I have nothing that can save, nothing that can help, nothing that can fix. Earlier, Jesus had said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? 
The Psalms tell us some very sobering truths. I believe this is in Psalm 49. It says this, Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. No man can give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. You cannot pay God anything to save your life. No amount of good works, no amount of good thoughts, no amount of good money, no amount of good anything. Guys, like, too much. You don't got enough. But I have so much. You got nothing. Nothing of value. Now, the children literally have nothing. I have had my sons in their younger years say, I'm going to run away. I said, you should. That'd be great. But by the way, you don't own anything. So leave everything here, including your clothes, and walk out naked. See you later. Right? I've literally spoken those words to one of my children. They own nothing, right? They have nothing. And the younger they are, the less they have. Children may not see that, but we see that on behalf of children. But childish adults believe they got a lot to offer God. Well, I, I got something to escape judgment. I got something to prove my worth. I've got, I've got something that, that allows me into the kingdom. Matthew 7, scariest passage, I think, in the Gospel of Matthew, if not the entire New Testament. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And you read this passage, and it's this picture of what happens at judgment. And these people come up to Jesus, and they're like, Oh, Lord, Lord, we did so many things in your name, and we did mighty works and cast out... Like they actually had successful ministry. But it's interesting, as they're standing for the judgment seat of God, what they spend all their time talking about themselves. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, if your first thought is to go to what you did or what you didn't do, you are not thinking about the gospel. As you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the only thing you can say is, I have nothing to offer you, but Christ has offered everything for me. That is the only right answer. Not, let me tell you all the things I did. We told the Bible studies I led and people I led to Christ, churches I planted, missionaries I funded. I wouldn't say it's meaningless, but in terms of value to ransom your life, it's valueless. I have a childlike faith when I believe I have nothing to offer And anything that I have, as Paul says, is as good as garbage in comparison with the glories of Christ. Truly, the mark of one who knows they have nothing of value to God in terms of salvation is the one who is willing to surrender everything they have of value in the world if it means being with Christ, no matter what it is. Not only do I have nothing to offer you, God, to save me, I recognize that everything I need is what you have. Knowing you, 
is more than anything. Desiring you is worth more than anything. Being with you is worth giving away everything. You know what this is? The place of surrender. Unless you're at the place of surrender, saying, I have nothing and I need everything, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. But brings us to a third belief. If you get to the place of surrender, and that is a gift of God, I believe, you get everything in Christ. The childish come to Jesus believing they have everything. They need to enter the kingdom of God. But the childlike come and say, I got nothing. And Jesus says, yes, here's my gift. I give it to you. But here's the deal. You're not the only one getting everything. Jesus is getting a whole lot too. What do I mean by that? The gospel tells us that Jesus gets all my sin. That's my gift to Jesus. And I get all his righteousness. Jesus gets my guilt. And I get all his innocence. He gets all my disease and my brokenness and my failures. And I get all of his health and beauty. He gets all my poverty because you are poor spiritually bankrupt, and I get all his wealth. He gets all of my rejection, and I get all of his acceptance. He gets all of my shame, and I get all of his glory. He gets the death I deserve, and I get his life and resurrection. I get everything, and so does he in many ways. I need something. I have nothing, and yet... I get everything. And by everything I mean, I get every blessing of being a child of the King. And especially the greatest blessing is His delight in me. It's not just approval. You're clean enough. It's delight. It's joy in His children. This is the Gospel. This is the good news. This is God saving us by punishing His Son, redeeming us by condemning His Son. This is how a holy God punishes the sin He hates and yet saves the sinners He loves. And it's foolishness! It's the kind of thing that only a child would believe. Right? The kind of thing like, Seriously? Are you, are you serious? Because that seems unbelievable. This is something that, as Jesus says, is impossible for man. But not with God. With God, all things are possible. There's nothing to do. Only something to believe. There's nothing to achieve or accomplish. There's only something to be received by grace through faith. Now, we'll close with this. Peter walks, watches this rich man walk away. And he heard Jesus say, you got to give everything up. And what's the first thing Jesus says? Oh, hey, Jesus, I've given everything up. I've given everything up for you. Right? We're in, right? I mean, we're, we're in. 
And Jesus gives him some promises. He says, basically, yes, anyone who, who gives up everything, family or, or home or possessions for my sake or the gospel will be blessed. And he says, many that are, that are last in this life are going to be first in the next. And he does make some promises to Peter. But I want to caution us as we close. Because you can read this childlike man who refuses to give away his stuff and go like, I'm just going to give away my stuff. And then you get closer, a step closer to a workspace gospel again. So I think it's, if the Lord asks you to give away or to go away or to do away with whatever it is he's at, you're holding too tight on, uh, he may ask you to do that. And I think that you should respond accordingly because being with Jesus is more important than that thing you want to hold on to. But I think we need to examine ourselves to ensure our motivations for doing any of this stuff are still gospel-centered. Why do I mean that? Elizabeth Elliot was the wife of uh, Jim Elliot, the martyred missionary. She, has, she recently died, I think, a year or two ago. Uh, but she wrote a book, and she had a story in there that you may have heard before. I think I've even shared before, but I appreciate it to bring this about, about motivation of why we do anything. It's a story, made-up story, about Peter. And Peter is walking with Jesus. And Jesus stopped his disciples. He said, hey, will you carry a stone for me? And disciples look around for a stone to carry. And knowing that Jesus didn't you know, specify how big the stone could be, Peter picks up a little rock and sticks it in his pocket. Sure. And they walk along for a long time. At about noon... Jesus waves his hands, and whatever stone that these disciples were each carrying turns to bread. Peter pulls out his little cracker. Dang it, right? So, lunch is over, and Jesus says again, Hey, would you carry a stone for me? So Peter's getting smart. Sure thing, Jesus. You know, just picks up the biggest stone he can and puts it on his shoulder, and they start walking for a long time. And it's heavy. Peter's a strong dude, but it's heavy. And it gets about dinner time, and they walk up to a body of water. And Jesus says, Kids, stop. And he goes, Go ahead and throw your stones in the water. Peter looks at him. Okay. He throws it in, and nothing happens. Peter's just disappointed. Are you kidding me? And Jesus says, Do you remember what I asked you to do? He goes, Who are you carrying the stone for? We can do a lot of good things. We can give away a lot of possessions. We can do a lot of things that really look really spiritual, but they're ultimately for ourselves. They're still very childish. We must be careful, we must examine ourselves. Don't be childish like that. Be childlike. For it is to the children that belong the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace and your patience with us. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to examine ourselves, to see what we truly believe. Expose our desperate need, Lord, our need for something beyond this life, our need for hope, our need for security, 
a need for forgiveness. And would you also expose the fact that we have nothing in ourselves to fix that, nothing in this world to take care of that, nothing that we can really do to bring to you to, to resolve all the problems we have and to restore relationship with you. But Lord, when we get to that place of surrender, that is where you come and say, yes. Receive forgiveness. Receive inheritance. Receive redemption. Receive love. Lord, thank you for giving us everything in Christ. Christ, thank you for your sacrifice. Remind us of what is most important in this world. Set our minds on the things above, not on the things below, that we might hope in your return and the fullness of living in your kingdom. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. I invite you this morning.